GM Y'all, welcome to Flywheel, your number one source for everything Frax, DeFi, and everything in between. If you want to know what's going on in the world on chain, well, you come to the right place. This is DeFi Dave here with Capital K, and we're here to help you harness the power of the flywheel. And today, we go to the fixed income part of the flywheel, those steady, steady, steady yields with Mr. Austin Campbell, adjunct professor at Columbia, former master operator at Paxos. And we dive into a completely different realm of stable coins, more of the traditional realm, a lot of stuff that your typical crypto person doesn't talk about. Crip, uh, Kit, thoughts on this one? He was the finance renaissance man. So we had yeah. such a great conversation and I can't wait for the listeners to tune in. You're going to learn a lot because this guy comes from more of a traditional background and he's crypto native as well like i would say he definitely has his feet firmly planted in both worlds so definitely you know, you want to stick around for the whole thing for this one and if you want to make sure you catch every one of our podcasts make sure you hit that bell button and subscribe to us on youtube follow us on twitter and telegram at flywheel DeFi. follow me on twitter at DeFi dave 22 follow me at zero x capital underscore k and let's get the flywheel spinning do you hold ETH but don't know what to do with it? Want to earn those juicy liquid staking derivative yields but don't know where to start? Well, Frax ETH is there for you. Frax ETH is Frax's native LSD solution, allowing you to earn boosted yields in multiple ways on your ETH. If you want to get started, go to app.frax.finance and turn your ETH into Frax ETH today. Greetings. Welcome back to this edition of Flywheel. Uh, I'm your host, Deep by Dave with Capital K. And today we have... A very stable episode. This is as stable as what are those things called? Like when you, uh, you know, when you measure something and you want to make sure that it's flat. A leveler. It's a leveler episode because uh, we have on stablecoin extraordinaire, former operator at Paxos, now adjunct professor of Columbia University, Austin Campbell. Uh, Austin, thank you for joining. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it's honestly an honor to have you on because I've seen you, you on Twitter. And I've been trying to find more stablecoin people. And I'm like, oh, this guy has like really good takes. He has really good threads. He's like, because there's crypto Twitter and then there's stablecoin Twitter. And stablecoin Twitter is still small, but growing. And I think it has a very high intellectual density. So thank you to uh, contributing to that. No, I appreciate that. I think um, I've been right place, right time for stablecoins, thanks to my background. So it's given me, call it yeah. a competitive advantage in understanding what's going on. Yeah. And it's funny, like when uh, when we connected on Twitter and I messaged you on Telegram, I didn't realize this, but you were at Stable Saloon. So we actually met in person yes. before and I saw the day. I'm like, oh, wow. So, um, yeah, thank you for coming to that, to that. Like, what did you think of that event? So I thought it was quite good. I think, you know, of all of the, call it crypto-centric uh, projects in the stablecoin space, Frax is one of the ones I think the most highly of. And so I wanted to come. I wanted to hear what people had to say. Yeah. It's a good crowd. And I feel like one of the things you get with, call it the good stablecoin-focused events, is that you get a very intellectually, like, curious and call it honest crowd. Like people just want to understand things. They want to build things. So it, it was a really good group. Yeah. And I think that's what makes stablecoins different from the rest of crypto. And this is as I go into my research more and as I get into the space more, it really is a different crowd with different needs, uh, with different priorities than the rest of crypto. Uh, would you agree with that? I would. And I think some of that is that to be in the stablecoin space, one, 
sort of necessarily, if you're any good at it, you're going to have at least some degree of crossover with traditional financial concerns and risk management. Mm -hmm. And then two, because you have to build something that has, call it objectively observable parameters as to whether you're doing well or not, you can <laughs> actually tell at least over some period of time what good craftsmanship looks like. So yeah. it forces discipline. Yeah, let's go into those objectively, objective uh, enforceable parameters. And I think that that's a big difference between stablecoins and crypto because with crypto, a lot of it is hype. A lot of it is like what energy around uh, you have the coin. Well, it's stable coins. It's like, okay, how do the mechanics work? How is it stable? Uh, can you go into the differences of, of the two a bit more? Yeah. So, I mean, look, fundamentally, you know, the way I explain it in my course at Columbia Business School is a stable coin is just the representation of a unit of fiat currency on a blockchain. And I say it specifically that way because I'm deliberately trying to leave out the stuff like pegged to securities, pegged mm. to gold, pegged to other kinds of crypto, and get to the core of what stable coins are, which is a form of money. And so what that means is if that's what you're dealing with, you have to actually have a mechanic to hold that peg. <laughs> yeah. right? There have been like three major types of this. So one is the fiat-backed crowd of the idea being like, if I'm a dollar-backed stable coin, if, let's take the simplest example possible. If I've literally got a vault full of dollars and every time I mint a coin, somebody gives me a bill. And every time I burn a coin, I give somebody a bill. I like your odds over a long period of time of holding your peg, you know, absent of somebody stealing all the dollars. And we can get into those concerns. Mm -hmm. um, you have crypto backed stable coins, right? Like DAI used to be a good example of this, but they've sort of changed strategy. So maybe now LUSD would be the best example of this. And that is one that, you know, in traditional financial terms, quite frankly, looks a lot like a securitization, right? Mm. Where you have a top tranche that is supposed to be very low risk and like safe, you know, you understand mm. what I'm saying here. Yeah. And then a lot of collateral beneath that that's there to absorb all the losses and ideally some way to unwind the structure before that collateral is totally destroyed and you eat into the safe layer, right? So built properly, they remind me a lot of, you know, the securitization space, which is not necessarily a bad thing. That's a market that has had both bad and good moments in finance, but exists for a reason. And then the last ones are the algorithmic crowd, which so far have largely been spectacular failures, or in the case of somebody like Frax, have realized some of the limitations of the model and actually started to dial it back in what I would call a responsible fashion. So you either go big and explode or realize <laughs> maybe you shouldn't go big yeah. and then start doing more responsible things to slow down the speed there. But those, I, I mean, we can talk about algos later if you want, but yeah. those have been a mess so far. And I think what we're getting into now is what is the proper structure for a stablecoin? And we're getting to uh, this idea of stablecoin maxim maximalism, uh, which is an idea that Sam presented at East Denver, which is basically on a long enough timeline Almost all DeFi protocols will resemble a stablecoin, and the most successful stablecoins will look universally universally the same at scale. Um, so, what are your thoughts on this idea of stablecoin maximalism? Uh, do you agree with it? Are there parts of it that you disagree with? Uh, Austin, go ahead. So, I would say I, I definitely disagree with it, but not mm. entirely. Right? Okay. Like I think I think there's a very astute point at the core of it. But I think the way to think about that is to go back to what I said earlier about the definition of a stable coin, which is that it's the representation of a unit of fiat currency. Okay, okay. And what that means is stable coins serve the role of money. 
right? Like when I go buy a coffee, when I go buy a sandwich, when I go buy a car, when I go buy a couch, I pay for that with whatever is money, you know, especially locally accepted money, depending on where I am. So in the U.S., I'm using a dollar. In Europe, I'm using a euro, right? In Japan, I'll use the yen. Fine. And so I think I am a stablecoin maximalist in the sense that for most protocols to work in the long run, unless some form of crypto becomes the dominant uh, accepted money. form of money, you're going to want a stablecoin. Okay. Full stop. But I don't think that means all protocols need to resemble a stablecoin. That, I think, is a bridge too far. I think it's rather that most protocols will probably use stablecoins to facilitate commerce because money mm -hmm. is what we buy goods and services with. Right. And then if you think about that for a bit, just like in the traditional financial markets, there are a lot of different kinds of money. So I also don't necessarily think they're all going to converge on one implementation. Right. Like mm. physical bills versus a bank deposit versus a money market fund are all very different instruments in traditional finance. I think the same will be true of crypto over time. Yeah. And I think here what we're getting to the limits of linguistics and what I mean by that is I think we we agree about stablecoins and fiat-backed stablecoins, but I think what we disagree is what a stablecoin is and the definition of a stablecoin per se. So to go back, I, so if you were to like replace stablecoin with a, you know, pegged asset, like, do you think, are, you know, like all these different, all these different protocols, like are going to have pegged assets that are to the core of them, whether it's, uh, you know, with a, uh, you know, Fraxy, that's an ETH pegged asset with um you know there's other ones too you have like gold picked assets do you think like that you think um that is something that's could happen down the line like i think so when i think about the space and mm -hmm. i think about the forward vision of what i see it being i hold the belief that on a long enough timeline the majority not all but the majority of assets will probably be tokenized right okay. so real estate stocks bonds so in the sense that you will need tokens that accurately represent the value of those assets. Yes, I agree. But I would, I might go even further and say they will not be pegged. They will just be the assets. They'll just themselves. be the assets themselves. Right? Yeah. Like, and I think that's the end game we want. Yeah. Exactly. I think we get there. So I think a bridging step is pegging some of those assets on a blockchain. I think that, but I, I'm a little less like, you know, maximalist about it. I jokingly call myself an anti-maxi maxi for the only kind of maximalist mm -hmm. I am. Which yeah. is to say, I think some protocols will go that way, but others will try to either be more crypto native or you're going to have things that are much more focused on things like, you know, artistic content, expression, communications. And in that case, you kind of don't need that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so there will be a diversity of implementations. So, I, you know, if that's the max, <laughs> call it the maximalist view, yeah. I probably just strongly am in that direction rather than maximalist. Mm. Do you have an alternative term? For, you know, because like something that Sam always says is ETH pegged stablecoin. Uh, if it's the, if under your definition, it's not a stablecoin because for you, a stablecoin is fiat backed what would be an alternative term for it. Yeah, I, I would probably call that just a like wrapped token or pegged token, depending mm -hmm. on how you want to do it. I think it, it and by the way, I'm, I'm open to changing that definition if ETH becomes a unit of account, and a thing that everybody wants to pay for things with. Yeah, but I think it is important. Um, when you think about things in terms of like economics on a blockchain or otherwise to distinguish things that are used as money from things that are not. Mm -hmm. So I think we do a disservice by calling, call it everything stable coins. We need, 
a little bit better of a taxonomy there. Mm -hmm. I'm also open to the idea that stable coins are all of that stuff, but then we need a much better phrase for or what are fiat. the parts of this yeah. that are money. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. oh, okay. I think we're both in agreement there. It'll be interesting to see how um, ETH evolves over time to become money, because I think outside of dollar peg stable coins, ETH is the best candidate to be that on chain. And you're already seeing that, you know, with people paying for NFTs um, and people exchanging between ETH. I've like definitely paid my friends in ETH for things as well. So it is happening, but I think like for that's deep, what do you, what do you think needs to happen for ETH to become money? Like to actually be that ultrasound money means to become a reality. Yeah. I would say if, if you're thinking about things becoming money, it's really a combination of two factors. One is a collective belief that the thing will maintain some degree of value. And the other one is just the actual ability to use it. Mm -hmm. So like one of my big critiques of the crypto space in general so far is similar to one of my critiques of the early internet, which is this is way too hard for people to use, mm. right? So if we think about the kinds of people you find in the space right now, it's like us, right? Like people who are power users, people who are deeply curious, people who have like engineering or tech or mathematics backgrounds, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's probably in the neighborhood of your median crypto user. And then the one step outside of that is probably people who have pretty serious problems with their local systems or banking relationships that are looking for another option. You know who's not in there? My mother, right? <laughs> and so what that means is to like branch into the real world where it's easier to pay for things. We're going to need a much better user experience and user interfaces where we essentially abstract away the fact that you're using crypto and kind of let people do it, call it the normal way. That is to say, I need to be able to pay for things with crypto and it can't be any harder than using Venmo right now. Yeah. Right. That's ultimately where you've got to go if you want mainstream adoption. And if you look at the curve of adoption of technologies, usually getting to the early majority and majority is more around like user interface and usability than it is the deep technical details. Yeah. And I think that's somewhere <coughs> crypto has been lacking is the UI because, you know, we're all intellectually curious and we all like to play these kind of like intellectual masturbation like one-up games with each other like oh my protocol can do this and that and that and that and it gets so complicated that sometimes if you get down the line like hey like we want to get users like how can we actually get users and i don't think there's like a better you know stopping ground to get users than stable coins and building stablecoin apps um but do you where do you see um so actually let's let's go back a bit let's go a little bit back into like your background so I was doing some research. You said your background is in fixed income training, which you described as a uh, stable coins before stable coins. Um, how did you come, how does that background give you the experience to work in this space and how has it helped you? Yeah. So let me start by describing something to you mm -hmm. and you tell me what this sounds like. So mm -hmm. I'm going to put together a giant pile of securities. Okay. We're going to put them all in a pile. And what we're going to do is say, these are the reserve or collateral that backs something. And that thing is something that you can always transact at all times at a fixed value in and out of, right? So in it, a dollar, out at a dollar, call it, if you want to, you know, cut the units to $1. So what does that sound like to you guys? Sounds like a swap facility. Right? It, exactly. It's, it's some kind of swap. It's some kind of like stable coin. It's some kind of money market fund. Well, there's this funky and weirdly complex instrument in the retirement space called a stable value wrap, right? Which you can think of as maybe a swap, probably a put option of some sort. 
And what that is, is a business where within the 401k world in the United States, so for those who are not U.S. persons or haven't dealt with this, this is the main retirement vehicle in the U.S. There's a thing called stable value funds that replace money market funds. And the reason for that is getting money in and out of like a money market fund is very easy. They're extremely liquid. But putting that much liquidity in your retirement vehicle is a little bit like killing an ant with a bazooka, right? Like, yes, it works, but gratuitous overkill. So what we do is take a bond portfolio that will have thousands and thousands of individual bonds within it and then sell a guarantee on top of it that says, hey, if everybody liquidates this thing and you sell all these bonds and there's not enough to give them their original money back, I'll pay you the remainder. That's called a stable value wrap. I ran that trading desk at JP Morgan. And we helped put that space back together after the financial crisis and sort of build what I would call the modern market standard in that space. And so that is a market that is a cross asset, highly complex. You know, it grew from about 400 billion to nearly a trillion by the time I left JP Morgan. So the depth there is pretty significant. So that's call it the main product in my bag in terms of what has been relevant to stable coins. So when I moved out of that space and I started looking at crypto and I saw people building stable coins, I'm like, aha, I know what this is. I've seen stable value funds. I've seen money market <laughs> funds adjacent to them. I also traded another product that dealt with bank capital. So I've thought a lot about bank deposits. And so all of these cash-like products I kind of understood. And when I started looking at stable coins, my first take was like, ah, these are like very primitive and being honest about my views at the time, kind of poorly designed versions of these products. <laughs> but I think it's really interesting that these are showing up on blockchains. And so that background sort of, you know, naturally legs me into stable coins when I started looking at crypto. Yeah. And like we all, I think you said this before, we all come from different backgrounds and usually they're tech heavy. Uh, I know, Kit, you got your MBA mm -hmm. uh, before and you were working in uh in private equity, right? Right before you got into crypto, Re reinsurance, yeah. which is even weirder and stranger <laughs> than private equity, right? So, like, obviously, way back in the day, I had intended to, you know, pursue a degree in mathematics and maybe become significantly more of an academic, like a graduate degree. My undergrad <laughs> is mathematics, and instead, I got interested in how you model exotic perils. Uh, in the very early two thousands, like terrorism risk was what originally got me interested interested in reinsurance national so security I sort of, yeah exactly and so that, i sort of got dragged in that way <laughs> right it, it and it provides me i think you know a couple of threads that are interesting as we look at crypto which is to say i've spent a lot of time thinking about like terrorist activity i've spent a lot of time thinking about tail risk and catastrophic perils and i've spent a lot of time thinking about cash stability and so if you took all of my weird niche interests and put them together into one thing, it's, it's perfect. A stable coin. It's perfect for a stable coin. Yeah, you're there. And, yeah. and you know, Austin, let's, let's continue this path. And it obviously led you into one of the most popular stable coin, you know, Paxos and kind of like running that whole uh, um, company. Like, could you share a little bit more about kind of like the average typical day of managing billions of dollars? In, in, in stable coin, in crypto, with all the limitations and regulations? Yeah, so I would say there's a couple of different distinct parts to that job, and that's part of why it's interesting. Like a stable coin, doing it properly with a fiat-backed one is a very multidisciplinary thing. So sort of number one in that is making sure you're managing the reserves properly. 
So every day with regard to that, you're going to be looking at, I have, you know, X billions of dollars that the holders of this coin have entrusted me to keep safe on their behalf because ultimately it's their money. And so you look at that and you say, okay, I need to invest this conservatively and fulfill the goals that we have essentially for the stable coin. So at Paxos, the way we laid out our portfolio management strategy was to say goal number one is principal preservation. Goal number two is liquidity and way in the back. Goal number three is yield. And I only put it at three because we don't have more goals on that list. Right. But in reality, <laughs> priority wise, it's like goal number eight. And so what that right. means is that number one, at the start of every day, we're like, what are our bank balances? What happened overnight? Do we need more cash in the system? Do we need cash out of the system? How are we going to move these things around within the snake that is traditional finance Two. What are the investments we're holding? Do we have enough at overnight reverse repo? Do we have enough in T-bills? What day of the week is it? Like, is there an auction? Are bonds coming due? And I've got to roll them. So it's very traditional portfolio management. And you're looking at keeping an adequate amount of liquidity and managing your risk there so that even if large, large, large amounts of people withdraw, there's absolutely no disruption. Like my goal at Paxos was to be able to pay out 50% of the holders of the coin any given day. 50%. Right. Yeah, in terms of managing the liquidity. Because mm -hmm. with a fiat-backed one, it, I mean, if 100% come and redeem, like, okay, but we'll just put the whole portfolio into unwind. Might take a few days, but we can get everybody out. But we kept a huge amount of liquidity just to make sure that we were mm -hmm. bulletproof on that front. Because whatever stress test you can build, these things have really only been around since about 2014 in terms of the experiments and 2018 in terms of scale. That's not a long history in financial markets. And so we erred on the side of conservatism. So every day, number one is that. Number two is then making sure that your operations are working with regard to mint burn, right? So <laughs> one of your biggest potential problems in fiat-backed world is I go and mint stable coins and give them to somebody and I don't have the money in hand when I do that, right? Because terrible things could happen there. Mm -hmm. So it's making sure as money comes through, Somebody pays us, we have it in our possession, we have legal control of it before you go and mint coins or the reverse is happening when you're burning. Like we got the tokens, they've been destroyed. Okay, now you can have your money. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so what that means, as you think that through, is that good operations matters a lot, but you also need to be thinking about your queue, seeing what's going on in the market, estimating inflows and outflows, having an idea of stress, having 24-hour operations around that thing. Like it's actually, you know, a decent amount of work to do that properly. And then the third part I would say is partnerships, at least for Paxos, is thinking about, okay, who do we distribute through? Do we work with market makers? What exchanges? Where are the coins? Like how do we build that ecosystem? Because to give a good experience to users, you need it to be usable elsewhere and you need liquidity. Right. And so you're wrapped up in all of that as well. And so that, you know, if I think about the three parts, those are the ones I spent my time on. And I think what's hard about it is all of them are genuinely important. Like if you fail at any one of those, you've kind of failed the end users of your product. Yeah. Like you have to be perfect when it comes to stable coins, whether they're crypto collateralized and whether they're fiat backed, like you cannot miss a beat. Otherwise you end up with a situation with USDC. So it's really interesting to hear that you had, 50% of your liquidity available at all times to be withdrawn at any given moment. Meanwhile, with USDC, I don't think it was even like 10 or 20%. And, you know, because of everything that happened in SVB, um, you know, there was a, a loss of confidence. We saw this DPEG. 
Well, uh, yeah. I'll say I, I think that is more a matter of craftsmanship. Like, I can what, what tell do you, mean? you... So, with regard to how Circle was holding their assets, one of the things that's toxic to these kinds of vehicles is credit risk, right? That is to say, if I'm holding securities where when somebody else defaults, I'm just going to get wiped out, short of the U.S. government. Like, mm -hmm. here's the reality. If your U.S. dollar stablecoin collapses because the United States itself collapses, fine. Right, like bigger that is problems. the risk you're taking by having a dollar stable. Right, right, right. But our goal was short of that. We didn't want anything to go wrong. So when I, when we held cash at Paxos, and that was not our main liquidity instrument, but when we held cash, we would go and buy private market insurance on it because we didn't think having unsecured bank deposits was a good idea. So like you'll notice when Signature went down, where Paxos historically kept a ton of cash, nobody really freaked out. And the reason is Paxos had insurance that even if Signature goes bankrupt, you have a line of reinsurers behind them who have to step in mm. and give you the money, right? Circle just parked $3.3 billion at Silicon Valley Bank, didn't protect it in any way, and just crossed their fingers. No insurance. I would tell you, like, the money market funds were not blowing up. The stable value funds were not blowing up. The other stable coins did not blow up. I would tell you that's just an error of craftsmanship on Circle's part, if we're being totally honest. And that sort of is one of the lessons of stable coins, as we were saying, is you need to be good at all of the parts. It's not enough to be good at tech. It's not enough to be good at distribution. It's not enough to just be good at the finance side, because then maybe you never scale and people don't use it, mm -hmm. right? You've really got to be good at all three, because the end users only own the downside, right? If I buy USDT or USDC or USDP, it's not going to 40, right? Yeah. So I'm only owning the DPEG risk. And so you need to protect them from that at all costs. Yeah, there's this social contract between issuers and holders. Holders, they ha they want stability. That's the only reason why they're holding the stablecoin. And then, you know, as an issuer, yeah, you get to earn yield on it. But in order to earn yield, you have to guarantee that there'll be liquidity for it, that it can be redeemed. And if if that is ever broken at any point, it's just, you know, it's a disaster. And we've seen since, you know, that whole USTC DPEG, it's been down only ever since for USTC. And it's been up only for Tether. Yeah, I mean, you know, I would say it's kind of ironic for all the flack they've taken over time that Tether has sailed through with some of the better portfolio management in this space <laughs> in comparison. But, yeah. you know, I, I would say, you know, my personal view, I think there's a lot of popular misconceptions about Tether and what they are and how those kinds of things work as well. What are and those then, uh, What are those misconceptions? Well, so... Number one is Tether's been around long enough that I think you need to spend time thinking about what the underlying stack is when you start looking at the risk of Tether in terms of holders and capital. So if I look at Tether as an outsider, I would tell you I kind of see three potential kinds of Tether, you know, represented by those tokens. One is what I'll call, you know, free floating money. That is Tethers that can be taken and redeemed, right? So that they probably need to make sure they're backed one-to-one -one at all times, like completely liquid, you know, the same way as other stable coins. Two, there's a decent amount of tether that's been minted that just seems to sit there, right? And so I would ask questions about where is that? Who's holding it? Are there agreements with people like custodians, et cetera, that either tether is aware of or tether is party to, where if you know those aren't going to be redeemed, you don't have to take such a conservative approach in terms of like liquidity because you know it's not coming back. Mm -hmm. Three, and this is something I think people don't think about nearly enough with Tether, 
there's some percentage of Tether that's just bricked on chain, right? Either it's in protocols that like lost the keys to smart contracts and stuff <laughs> is trapped in there. People set it to the wrong address on chain, right? Or it's like trapped on ghost chains without bridges with no real way to do anything with it. But there are, you know, call it probably half a percent to 1% of tokens per year that just get bricked for Tether. And when you've been around since 2014 on a cumulative growing balance, they could potentially have like mm. 2 billion-ish of Tether that's like literally irredeemable. Not like in the moral sense, but in the like literally don't even <laughs> bring it back to get the money. And mm -hmm. so what that means is if they invest that part really aggressively, who cares? It's not coming back. And so I think when you think about their liabilities, you need to understand what the coin looks like and then go look at their assets in relation to that. A lot of people have missed that step. The other part with Tether is that I don't love their lack of transparency. I think it's not great for the average market participant. But on the other hand, probably nobody in this space has caught more fire over time than Tether. Mm -hmm. So I also understand if you're a privacy maximalist and you're trying to keep this thing operating at all costs for the users in the face of pressure, why they would take that stance. It's a little bit similar to the you know, traditional private banking industry where there's a trade-off for the privacy. So the other part there is just because they don't disclose doesn't mean they're the bad guy or doing something genuinely dumb. It also doesn't necessarily mean they're the good guy, but mm -hmm. I would just take a neutral inference from that, not a negative inference and try to learn more. Yeah, it's a design choice by Tether to be yes. opaque. And that probably worked for their benefit uh, in times of duress, whether it was during the collapse of Luna or you know this whole USDC DPEG. If anything, like Tether became took the crown of, the risk-free asset of, uh, of crypto, which is really interesting to see. And it's shown that like, oh, maybe like right now it's Tether, which is basically the Euro dollar stablecoin has proven to be the right US dollar stablecoin model, which is quite ironic because you think like the onshore dollar like USDC would be, but because of, you know, the tone of regulation and things that have happened, like you said, with craftsmanship of USDC, that's not the case. Yeah, and I, I would go so far as to say it's my personal belief that the stablecoin that will ultimately win the stablecoin race has probably not yet been created. Because your ideal stablecoin has a number of these elements all put into a single chassis that just hasn't existed. So like if I'm looking at the market now, I would say I want to be offshore like Tether. Mm -hmm. I want to have sort of USDC's front end with the ability to have API integrations, the ability to move it between chains by delivering it to them, they burn it on one chain, mint it on another, you know, sort of keep that both highly liquid and transferable. But at the back end, I would want something that looks more like what Paxos did, which is some sort of bankruptcy remote vehicle so that if the issuer itself goes bankrupt, the users keep their money and have the portfolio management look basically like how Fidelity or Vanguard manage their money market funds, right? To me, that's the ideal fiat-backed stablecoin, and that thing definitely does not exist. Like, some people have elements of it, but nobody has done all of it. Mm. It's so interesting, all the nuances between stablecoins, because to the untrained eye, even to me, it seems like, oh, these are all the same. Uh, and maybe there's, like, some differences, like, oh, one's onshore, one offshore. But I didn't even realize the differences between UFCC and Paxos and the way they, you know, handle their reserves, handle their liquidity, how they think about safety, how they think about yield. It's really fascinating. Yeah, and I, I think this is one where 
sort of the crypto ethos of rejecting banks and traditional finance leads to a degree of prideful ignorance on the part mm -hmm. of the crypto community. Mm -hmm. Cash management is a very deep, very complicated space with, you know, at least a, you know, 50 year history behind it and a lot of brain damage through multiple financial crises, right? Not just 2008. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of lessons to be learned there about structure, best practices, business continuity, what happens when people go bankrupt. And building high quality products is quite difficult, right? Like we're not building a stapler here. This yeah. is more like building a nuclear reactor. Yeah. Uh, Kit, you were going to say something? Right. Yeah, yeah, Austin. I just wanted to ask like, if the perfect recipe to this stable coin exists, just like you just kind of listed out the five things there. Like, why hasn't anybody come in and just do it? <laughs> well, so I'll say a couple of things on that front. Um, one, I think prior to probably the last year and a half, it wasn't possible in an offshore jurisdiction with a genuinely good regulatory framework. Whereas now with Mika coming online in Europe, so I can put something on the mainland, with Singapore having started to issue major payments licenses to people, with the UK moving forward on a framework, I think you've got some legitimate jurisdictions where you could build something like that. Number two is quite frankly, there's just not nearly enough people who really get the dark arts of cash management in crypto, right? Like I joke with another mm. friend of mine that I we know all three of us, right? <laughs> and the, the Venn diagram of people who are super cranky, risk averse, fixed income portfolio managers and yet crypto experts, which by definition is somewhat risk-seeking, is very small, right? So I just don't think the expertise existed. And then I think some of it is just path dependency. Most of the crypto attempts at stablecoins come from a very tech-focused perspective, and they greatly underestimated the difficulty of the financial side. Just like banks consistently underestimate the difficulty of building the technology, side. right? Like, so fair is fair. Right, right, right. And on the other hand, there were a handful of banks that I can tell you looked very closely at this and building something. Most of them either failed on the tech or were blocked by regulators, right? Mm. So there is sort of a set of things that went wrong to leave us in the current position. But I also think all of those are solvable errors and the commercial incentives to solve them are extremely large. So I think they will be over time. Yeah. And I'd also add, you know, it takes time to grow a monetary premium for a stablecoin. It takes time to get that adoption. And like what you're saying with finding those partners in the ecosystem, whether they are market makers, you know, whether they're everyday users, whether, you know, they're people doing, you know, sending money to their relatives uh, offshore. Uh, I forget the name of it. Ren What's that name? Remittances. Sorry. Remittances. Whether it's like remittances, you know, whether it's people getting paid, it's like, how do you get your stablecoin to become the prime stablecoin to get paid in? And like, but you could do all the right things. You know, you could master the dark arts of fixed income. You know, you could, you know, have dot your I's, you know, cross your T's and everything. But if at the end of the day, if you don't grow that monetary premium and if people don't use your stablecoin, then what good is it? You know what I mean? Yeah, and also from a regulatory perspective, some of the characters you would have expected to jumpstart that have been prohibited from doing it. Because mm. you know how you get global adoption of a stablecoin? JP Morgan issues one. Yes. Right. But like, <laughs> as of yet, that has not been possible, right? Like the biggest financial players with the existing networks are not in this space. Yeah, because of regulatory reasons. And that leads to my, my next question. Like, let's say if they were given the, the green light and they could release stablecoins. Do you see them participating in DeFi, like in the curve wars, or do you see them trying to like 
create kind of their own moats and like their own like separate chains and roll-ups and whatnot. Yeah, I I would say certainly they're not going to be in like the curve wars or something like that. Partially because, quite frankly, they just don't need to. <laughs> yeah, um, they don't need right? to. Because like <laughs> as you, as you think about stablecoin liquidity, that's a whole thing. So you can exchange them for each other and eventually get them back to dollars. Like, well, none of those are problems for a giant financial institution. They do all of that at a trillion dollars of scale per day. Per so day. like, yeah, they don't care. Um, <laughs> right, which which is curve is too small. The second part is they're going to be operating under a set of rules that are very different than what crypto currently exists under, right? Like if I'm a regulated bank, I have to do KYC AML. And like some of my comments on crypto have sort of made this clear as to how I view that around fiat-backed stable coins, which mm-hmm. is to say, if you want to use real world assets within the traditional financial system to back your stable coin, at some point you're going to be forced to play by those rules, Right. And so they, I would tell you, they are operating in a very different paradigm than traditional like DeFi. And the idea of decentralization doesn't make a lot of sense to banks because they're like, well, I own centralized liability no matter what. So like what? Mm-hmm. Right. Like outsourcing to them in that sense is just a way to get hit with multi-billion dollar fines that they don't have control over. And so I, I think it's important to understand you know, a, a properly designed stablecoin in that regard is basically a bridge from crypto to TradFi or from TradFi to crypto. And that I would expect for the more crypto native applications of that, things like the LUSDs of the world are like Frax, which in many ways now is acting as a wrapper on top of those that can then engage in many more DeFi native activities or the path forward. Yeah. Right? Like you don't need one thing that's the be all and end all that does everything. No, there's definitely going to be a world uh, when this gets figured out, not just like hundreds of stable coins, probably like thousands of stable coins, each without, yeah. Or a handful of stable coins, but thousands of implementations built on Implementations, yeah. It'll be one of those two. Because I I would say I am not a stable coin proliferation maximalist because Mm. centralizing the liquidity has big value. Yeah. Right. The more liquid something is, the more valuable it is in general for commerce. So like, no, I actually don't see there being thousands of stable coins. I probably see there being something of an oligopoly, but they're much more open source, probably interest paying for the holders and then many, many implementations built on top of them. Let me correct myself. Thousands of pegged assets. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I see what we've done. Good yeah. continuity. Uh, yeah. Uh, Austin, I, I wanted to do, double click into the JP Morgan US dollar stable coin there. Like if they were to bring that out and they're able to have the green lights across the board and they're rolling it out. The third element that you spoke of earlier was partnerships. Do you think JPM is just so big that they'll just, I'll just partner with myself. My left hand will work with my right hand and I'll create this whole universe of of DeFi for the users if they so choose. I, I think more than that, they can abstract a lot of that away. And this is not specific to JP Morgan, so let me not pick on them. This could be City, this could be B of A, this could be Wells Fargo, Standard Chartered, HSBC, whomever, right? But the idea being, if I just represent my cash instrument for a bank in the back end with a blockchain, right? Now I've got a thing that if I'm using the right kind of stuff is scalable across many implementations. So you can see it as a crypto token in, say, your MetaMask wallet that you've probably had to KYC with them, but fine, that exists there, but you can pay a guy at the deli and it can just show up in his bank account, 
right? Like these become instantly fungible across all the mm. form factors in which people want to see them because that's the power of being the issuer. So think of Circle's implementation right now where I could go from like call it AVAX, right, to ETH and ETH to AVAX through their like implementation. Mm. Well, yeah, but now imagine I could go from like AVAX to a bank account or AVAX to physical cash at an ATM. Because to them, as long as it's just like a fungible mm. dollar token, that's what this technology is really good for, right? And so I would tell you, I think the reason the large and scaled financial entities getting into this space would be the point at which we're going to see mainstream adoption is one, they can abstract away the fact that people are using crypto. You kind of don't have to think about it or care about it. And two, their existing distribution network into the real world is gigantic. So matching that to a blockchain means that they have infinity partnerships with like merchants, credit card issuers, et cetera, that are far greater in scale than anything in crypto right now. So that that's kind of why, you know, and why in my congressional testimony, I was saying this is such a priority for the U.S. is if you understand how that integration can work, that's an incredibly powerful tool for both financial inclusion and building connectivity in the network. Yeah, I have a So we're talking about JP Morgan, you know, this big, international conglomerate but i want to like take it down a level like what about state banks what about local banks um how would they issue a stable coin at a local scale because they have you know different customers different needs what would that look like yeah so i'll say there's potentially two different kinds of stable coins that a bank can issue so let's start by distinguishing them from each mm -hmm. other so number one would be what I will call a bank deposit token. That is to say, this is just your deposit at the bank, but in stablecoin form. Mm -hmm. um, if you put those on a blockchain, really all that's doing is creating a 24-7 payments network where people are still going to have to settle between them. Because if I'm like, you know, let's pick some actual banks here. So if I'm like MVB and I'm trying to pay fifth third, Right. That doesn't happen with Fifth Third having deposits at MVB. They ultimately settle up right in what is essentially cash between those two institutions. So we'll need to do that. But it's creating a 24 seven real time system. The problem is these still work like bank deposits. And so the end users have all of both the benefits and disadvantages of bank deposits. And we've seen a lot of the disadvantages recently with banks going under. The second way they could potentially do this is creating sub-entities that are removed from the rest of the, call it activities of the bank, that look more like some sort of internal money market fund, or to use the term the Fed hates, a narrow bank, where <laughs> here's how that bank works, right? I take deposits and I buy T-bills. The Fed's worst nightmare. Right. And I, <laughs> the fact that I stopped talking there was a feature, not a bug, right? Like they don't have any lending risk. And so what that does is kind of creates, if you will, a layer zero for money where like all banks can participate in this thing. It's a way to divorce the commercial lending component from the using the system for payments component, right? And so that sort of thing, whether it's offered by a massive bank or a local bank, that's very scalable and very usable for everybody. I don't think there's a big difference. Mm -hmm. So that that's the important distinction. Like if a state bank launched a thing that's legally distinct, bankruptcy remote, T-bills only. I don't think that's any different than JP Moore. Everybody can settle into that. That's fine. Mm. Yeah, I, I believe I saw legislation from, you know, Senator Tomey before he retired that was exactly that model where it was, you had the, you know, what's backing the stablecoin siloed from a different part of the bank. And I could see that becoming, you know, the model maybe for these smaller scale ones in the future. 
Yeah, and I think that would lead to natural consolidation amongst them. That is also very similar to the model in the McHenry Waters bills that are mm -hmm. running around in Congress right now, where I think most people believe, hey, crypto deposits are what we would call hot deposits, which is to say they committed out very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure that's totally true, but it's fair to regard them that way from a risk perspective for a nascent industry. And if you're doing that, you probably don't want to back them with long duration credit risky things. So I think that's a good model. But it does naturally lead to us changing the shape of the U.S. banking system, because right now, mm. look, this is a little bit weird, but here's how it works. If I'm a grocery store and I want to take payments from people, I need a bank account. And if I have a bank account somewhere, they're using that money to go make like commercial real estate loans and mortgage loans and like credit card loans and that's not really what the grocery store wants. They just want to take in money. But, you know, it's kind of like, you know, the payments crowd is subsidizing borrowing in this country in a strange way. And stable coins start to break down that relationship, which I think could have some interesting long-term impacts. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, if the structure <laughs> gets into place, it may, because, you know, it seems it's so bulletproof in a sense that like everybody will want to like go to that structure in the long run. Maybe. I mean, so here's the interesting thing about markets. As people would flow to that structure, the yield that you're going to get on risk-free oh. instruments will go down <laughs> and the yield that you get for risky lending will go up as a capital allocation matter. And then that will make risky lending more attractive on a relative basis. So there's always going to be the push-pull of market forces. Mm -hmm. I'm not as like much of a catastrophist about the market structure changing as some others because I think prices will just adjust. But prices will adjust and it would be important to understand, you know, sort of the taxonomy of the new system, if you will. Yeah. And you mentioned just before there's a McHenry Waters bill on the floor right now. Can you go into that? Yeah. So uh, it used to be the McHenry Waters bill, a joint bill between the two. Now there is a McHenry bill and a Waters bill. Uh, right? They couldn't They're sort of competing. Yeah. Uh, th look, <laughs> this is classic Washington politics. Uh, but I would say. Substantively, I think both parties in the House agree that some sort of legislation to create safety and soundness around stablecoins is a good thing. I think they disagree on how exactly to do that. Probably the biggest salient disagreement between them is the Republicans think that stablecoins, at least up to a certain scale, should be able to be regulated solely by the states. And the Democrats want it all to be federal. And that is a big policy distinction, but it exists. And I think it's hard to move something forward until they solve that. And unfortunately, even if they move it forward, I don't think the Senate wants to do anything with it currently. Oh, no. I mean, you have uh, what's his, Sherrod Brown, who's the chair of the banking committee, who hasn't had a bill pass his committee in his entire tenure, I believe. In six years. Yeah, that, Is that true? I'm, am I, <clears throat> correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that's not I, even crypto related, but that. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's true, but I can tell you I don't think he intends to pass a crypto. Oh, no, I don't um, see that either. And so we're going to be in this situation where most of the well-regulated stable coins that you would want to build that fit the kinds of structures that are long-term durable probably show up offshore. Yeah. I don't think that's great for the United States. I kind of warned about it in my testimony when I was at the House Committee on stable coins. But unfortunately, I think that's where we are. You know, if I were in the UK or Singapore, I'm looking at this as a gigantic opportunity to seize a bunch of business from America and create jobs and economic assets opportunity in my country yeah and well you have 2024 coming up uh people i mean yeah elizabeth warren's up for re-election 
that probably has all the attention of crypto people. But also, Sherrod Brown is up for re-election in Ohio, nonetheless, which is a purple state. And so if that state were to get flipped, like that would be a big deal, especially if Republicans take over the Senate. And if like, let's say there's like a red wave, like I'll I'll push back on that slightly because I know some very crypto constructive Democrats as well. I don't think this is a Republican versus Democrat issue. I think this is a progressives versus call it fiscally inclusive Democrats issue. And then on the Republican side, I do think there's some confusion. I think Mm -hmm. it's largely call it the free market Republicans versus the neocons. Yeah. Right. Because there's some Republicans who are anti-crypto. If you're a control maximalist, you hate crypto. Let but me, like on, yeah. the, on the Democratic side, for instance, maybe yeah, the single, yeah, the single most pro crypto guy in all of Congress is Torres, and he's a Democrat. He's really but, sharp. I saw his test, like his questions he was asking. He knew his stuff. So Richie is a really bright guy. Like for those of you who don't know who Richie Torres is, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, go look this dude up and read what he said about crypto. He gets it. I think very highly of what he's saying in the space. And also his staff is good. And one of the things you don't always see in Congress is they've got 900 things to do. And I guarantee for almost none of them is crypto like number one on the list. Like, you know, not defaulting on the debt, national security, healthcare. These are all above. Yeah. And so you need staffers who know what they're doing. And they're typically pretty overworked young people. So that there's, you know, a variety of like levels of information getting through, but they're, they're very pro crypto Democrats. And one thing I would advise a lot of Democrats is it's not about necessarily flipping Republican. It's about supporting the pro crypto Democrats in primaries. Yeah. Uh, let me correct myself. Cause I was more speaking from like a bird's eye view with like, it seemed, not like I know, I mean, Taurus and I've seen other like pro crypto Democrats, but it seems like things like from like a general point of view it's like things are shifting on like cultural war lines which i don't like um this is just how like u.s politics has been for like the past 15 years but you know we have to support those that are pro crypto whether they are red or blue i i'm more saying because i i am short that distinction continuing on purely political lines and the reason for that is that Crypto is such a powerful tool, if done correctly, for financial inclusion. I don't believe the Democrats can remain opposed to it. Because if you were going to be a party that has significant amounts of minority voters and some of the voters on the poorer end of the scale, who quite frankly have been mistreated over time by banks and scaled financial institutions, if you remain pro-crypto, or sorry, if you remain anti-crypto instead of flipping pro-crypto, you will send a lot of those people to the Republicans if the Republicans stay pro crypto. Mm-hmm. I don't think that political dynamic like remains unless you want to see a massive realignment of what the parties are. Yeah, and on top of that, uh, not just voting but fundraising. Um, yes. Like, like I can imagine, you know, there in twenty twenty four, you know, people getting more organized on the crypto end and supporting and funding those pro crypto candidates. You might have saw that a little bit in twenty twenty in the wrong way with SBF <laughs> trying, trying to monopolize the space. And you saw a little bit in maybe like 2022 with some certain representatives and whatnot, but hopefully like 2024, you know, the ind- what can the industry to do to get its shit together to, you know, both support the right candidates as well as, you know, lobby and have a presence in Washington to push uh, the right policy forward. So I would say, I think the first thing the industry needs to start doing is policing its own house a little better. Right. Which is to say, and I think, by the way, we've started to move in that direction. So like the fact that like 
the Three Arrows Capital guys trying to launch something new was basically met with universal condemnation is great and we need more of that. Don't support projects that like screw up with other people's money, don't have basic risk management standards, and don't continue to fund people who screw those kinds of things up to make the industry look bad. I would tell you that's step one, because if you don't shed sort of the tag that you're supporting that activity, you're never going anywhere like big time with either party. Two, I think a lot of this is an education problem. Like, here's the reality. If you look at voices in crypto that sort of get into the mainstream, we've usually got two groups, right? It's people screaming about Bitcoin being the solution to all of the world's problems, like, say, Michael Saylor. And then on the other end, extreme crypto skeptics like Jamie Dimon just out there crapping on things. We need more people who do a good job of explaining in neutral ways. You know, things like this podcast are very good for that. And I would encourage people to continue sharing them boost these voices and participate in this because education will win the battle in Washington when they see that voters like yeah. genuinely care about this and will, you know, join the people who have a smart view. The last part, we do need some political lobbying organizations that are not like, you know, call it so ideological. It doesn't help if you create an organization that is like extreme privacy maximalists in Washington, mm -hmm. because these <laughs> yeah. are people getting intelligence briefings who know what's actually going on with terrorism financing and if you tell them 100% of money should be free at all times, they're thinking like, Jesus Christ, North Korea is building nukes and you're telling me this? Like, it's just not credible. So you've got to be willing in Washington. You know, it's like the Otto von Bismarck quote, right? Like, politics is the art of the possible. You need to be willing to work on what's possible, not what's ideal. Yeah. And I just think about uh, Congressman Foster's part of his testimony. when he, Specifically with you, he was really honing in on the nominee. Mm -hmm. Uh, and privacy part of it, really, like, really, it was real. I'm assuming he's on like the intelligence committee or something and gets those briefings. But what are your thoughts on, you know, you know, his comments and privacy in general when it comes to stablecoins and crypto? Well, I would tell you, I think Representative Foster and Mize Exchange is basically the exact kind of thing that shows we aren't doing a good enough job in crypto, which is to say this. So that guy, to be clear for everybody here, is a PhD physicist who was part of like the Fermi lab. He is very, very smart. He's part right? of the, like what, the Fermi? The what yeah, the Fermi lab at one of, point. So like a very well-regarded physics lab. He's, yeah. he's a genius is what I'm saying. So like there's <laughs> not an intellectual capacity gap there. That dude is smart. And if he doesn't know this stuff and isn't getting briefed that we have like freeze and seize capabilities and we can actually do mm -hmm. a pretty good job with blockchain intelligence and detecting bad actors, that's a failure on our part of educating people. Because he genuinely didn't know. Like, I talked with him and one of his staffers afterwards. I've been making a few connections for them in the crypto space to try to help with education. And I think part of why we're running into opposition is people just don't have good info on what's possible. Right? So that's what I mean by the industry needs to do a better job of educating. Because mm. I think you have a number of Democrats where their heart is in the right place. And if they really understood the technology, it would be supporters not opposing us. I, I couldn't agree more with that. And I even see with the Senator Shroud Brown's like comments, it just seems like he's more concerned than anything. And I feel like it may, maybe I'm, I'm just an optimist at heart. So I'm like, maybe if you got like the proper education and maybe if the industry showed us up more of like how it can empower people instead of like, oh, how people can gamble here, then like, you know, eyes return in Washington to a different direction. I agree. And, you know, to some extent, <laughs> you know, this is similar to the development of the Internet, too. 
right? For people who have some gray hair like me, we remember when everybody was like, ah, oh, the internet's only good for like, you know, pornography and gambling and buying drugs, mm-hmm. right? That's, you know, kind of the rep that crypto has right now. So it's part of being early in the adoption cycle. So over time, I think that will be helped. But I think it is important that the community, if you want to see that, you have to push it that way. Yeah. Right? That doesn't happen magically. We have to do it. And why do you think other countries in other regions like Europe, Singapore, especially Hong Kong, like they have frameworks in place, like they've done the work with education. Like what did they do with education? What do they do right with their politicians where they have frameworks in place now? So I think there's two parts to that. Part one is that the political system in some of these countries works differently than the United States. So I would tell you the average quality of bureaucrat that you get in a place like, say, Singapore is much higher than the United States. They are higher paying jobs. They are higher status jobs. They get more applicants. They hold them to higher standards. It's easier to fire people when they don't perform. Right. So one, that. Two, many of the places you named are much smaller than the United States. Like this is a giant country, both geographically, number of people and number of like complicated problems. It's much easier to run Singapore, which is a single city of like the single digit millions of people than it is to run even New York City, much less the United States. So I think they have an agility advantage as well in a lot of these places and that they're not sort of dealing with a problem set nearly as large as ours. So those two factors combined would make them natural leaders in this space. They are in many ways like the agile startup to like the U.S. behemoth, if you will. Mm -hmm. I think if we're smart, though, we watch all those experiments, look at the ones that work. And rather than sort of excluding external ideas, we just steal the ones that are good. Actually, Austin, that was exactly my point uh, um, a couple podcasts back because I was like, why does the U.S. need to try so hard right now? Yes, a lot of companies are fleeing overseas and they're doing their thing overseas. But the moment the U.S. turns it on, you know, effectively make the regulations, everything is clear, they'll all come back. Uh, this is going to be the most premier market and the, the place you want to be. So they'll, they'll just come back. I, I will say to answer your question, I'm not so sure that's true. But I think that fundamentally has to do specifically with the actions of the SEC. I think were they not doing what they're doing, I agree with everything you just said, and I would be on board with that. The problem with the SEC right now is they're engaging in what, you know, I believe is a pretty two-faced strategy of simultaneously refusing to make rules, refusing to provide a realistic path for registration, because something like four tokens have registered with the SEC after pretty terrible processes that killed all four of those projects. Because as it turns out, you can't comply with the rules and continue trading, right? So it's not committed register. It's committed commit suicide if you understand what the SEC's actual playbook is. And then at the same time they're doing this, they're running around on the other hand, blaming crypto and being like, the rules are clear. Why don't you guys register? You're the problem. We're going to sue all of you. We're going to enforce. And by the way, look at who they're enforcing against. Like they're picking a fight with Paxos and Coinbase. These are not the problems. Where were they on Terra? Where were they on FTX? Where were they on Celsius? They're meeting with FTX. Where were they on Mt. Gox? Right. They like if I just made a checklist of everything bad, they missed it all. And if I made a checklist of everything good, they are going after those people. It is not the behavior of a regulator that's going to be seen as legitimate. By the way, it stands in stark contrast to the majority of other regulators in the United States. 
if you look at the CFTC, they've been pretty transparent about what they think is acceptable, and they've been willing to work with people. If you look at the banking regulators, they're very skeptical on this space, but they're willing to tell you what they believe and what they think is permissible. Like, you know, I may not agree with the Federal Reserve, the OCC, and the FDIC on everything, but they put a note in the Federal Register telling people exactly what they believed and kind of why. And so they were very transparent. You know, there's a lot of very smart people at those institutions that I deal with that I have a lot of respect for them. And I think, again, I don't always agree, but I think they're trying to do the right thing. The SEC is really the outlier right now. Yeah. And to both of your points, I think things could actually change on a dime with the right court decision. Like, for example, you have the Ripple case that's making its way through. You know, if the court rules against the SEC, then it's open season in the best way possible. I mean, it, it kind of depends how, you mm-hmm. know, they rule against them. I think it's possible, but I would tell people when you're dealing with courts, expect very nuanced decisions from lawyers on very long time frames as your mm-hmm. median expectation. That's just the way courts work. Yeah. So I wouldn't hang my hat on that. And like, Katie, your uh, previous point, I think the worry that I have now is if other jurisdictions make good rules and treat companies well and don't jerk them around, even if the U.S. opens back up, I don't think they move back. Maybe they put like small really? business development offices here. But like if I went to the U.K. and they've been great to me for four years, I'm not leaving. Why is the SEC like this? <laughs> well, oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> that, that, is a, that is a loaded question. Um, so. I, I'm not anybody's uh, psychiatrist in this space, so that, that is a hard question to answer. But I, I would say, at one, at the core of it, I think the SEC does have some valid points about investor protection. So let me not say that, like, you know, they're, like, deliberately engaging in, like, actively destructive behavior just to be jerks to people. Mm-hmm. There have definitely been instances of, like, insider trading, fraud, theft of assets, commingling of duties, completely inadequate risk management. Like all of that is true of crypto and those criticisms deserve to be listened to. I think the problem now is they're going so far to try to get regulatory authority and bullying people to do it, that what they've done is sort of taken what was an initially sound starting point, then taken it so far, they've become the problem themselves, right? It's a little bit like saying, hey, because there's drunk drivers, I've figured out a solution to this. Anytime I see somebody in a car, I'm going to shoot them. Right? It's like, okay, hold on. <laughs> yeah. Wait, <laughs> like, hold on. Wait, 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 wait. And so I think a lot of what happened with the SEC is a combination of not being up to speed, probably being embarrassed that they missed some of the big things and feeling mm-hmm. like, quote, they needed to do something. And they woke up and got very cranky and just started hitting everybody they could with the stick kind of indiscriminately. Yeah. What's interesting about the, yeah, go ahead, Kit. I just wanted to ask a question on that. Do you think that's a issue with like the leadership that is feeling this way and and driving the uh, SEC in this direction? Or is it going to take a whole new removal of the old guards and in with the new to kind of, you know, give us a fresh reset? It's probably some, (laughs) excuse me, some combination of both. They weren't this intransigent under Clayton and they have been under Gensler, which tells you that part of it is leadership, but not all of it is leadership. Like they didn't make a lot of progress under Clayton either. And they did miss some of the bad things happening there. I think the other part is back to what I said. Like, look, if you look at the SEC, all of their salaries are online. Like you can find that they're public servants. Mm -hmm. 
the highest paid people at the SEC make less than like the average associate in capital markets on Wall Street. Right. I also just think as you get into a really nascent, difficult, complex space, we may just not be attracting the talent we need to do a good job. Yeah. I'd also say with the SEC, I mean, yeah, their job is to project in investors that's in their mandate. But you know what else is in their mandate? Capital formation. And the actions they're taking is destroying capital formation. Uh, in this regard. So like, what are your thoughts? I, I'm on not that? sure they're protecting investors. Right. If you look at like GBTC, the fact that they've prevented that from becoming an ETF or doing conversions has probably cost retail investors billions of dollars. That's not That's great. Um, they completely failed to enforce against people who were clearly doing business in the United States, who later turned out to be some degree of complete clowns or scammers right across the stack of all the companies I mentioned previously, that's not great investor protection. And then on top of that, you're screwing up capital formation. I would, again, as I said, I think the SEC is an outlier here mm -hmm. in that they've failed at basically all of their goals in this space. And I'm not sure what their end game is with all of the others. I may agree or disagree, but I think they're at least going about things in a mostly intellectually honest way and trying to do the right thing. Uh, so, all right, we've been, you know, do, doing a little bashing, but I want to offer a road to redemption. Like, what is the SEC's hypothetical road to redemption here? So, I mean, the simple one is, like, guys, just engage in rulemaking and publish some rules. Like, we need a pathway to know if things are a security or not, what your definitions for them are. And then if things are a security, how do they trade in a compliant way? Right. How should a crypto exchange operate? How should a crypto custodian operate? What do you even mean by clearing? Like, how are we going to categorize DeFi? The, you know, step one is just make clear rules. Right. To me, why I say again that I think they're kind of the outliers, their complete refusal to make clear rules is really at the core of this problem. Because the idea of we're going to regulate by enforcement, but you don't know what we're going to enforce because we won't tell you what the rules are, that's not legitimate rule of law. No. No. And so yeah, I really like your analogy in the um, Congress hearing where it's like you're playing a sport, but all the rules apply or they may not apply or they may all apply at the same time. Sometimes I feel like it's so, football. Like, sometimes I feel like it's basketball. <laughs> Other times I feel like it's pickleball, you know, so go figure. Um, so what are the consequences of, you know, the U.S. not providing a framework for stable coins? So the simple one is that we're going to have stable coins elsewhere. One, if they're dollar-backed stable coins, we're not going to have great control of them through all of our traditional methods. So you lose all the data. So the treasury has a problem in terms of like OFAC, like FinCEN type concerns, because they may not get nearly as much as what they used to get. We also have a problem from an investment perspective in that we have less influence on them through policy over what kind of investments they're making and why. The next part is there's no guarantee that those are necessarily dollar-backed stable coins, right? This is opening the door for the standard currency on a blockchain to become the euro, the yen, the yuan, right? Like, it's just giving other people ammo to start eroding the use of the dollar over time. And if you believe that, like I said earlier, most things are going to be tokenized, then whatever is used as money on a blockchain becomes sort of the reserve currency of the future, so to me, this is really one of those like old man yells at cloud kind of stances here by the U.S. of like it's technologically incoherent and you're like trying to get progress and technological innovation to stop. That's not a winning position. And so we're just going to give it all away.
Yeah. And, you know, I feel like there's like a sense of urgency here. I know I'm feeling it right now, you know, like, guys, like, come on, like, we, we have the lead right now. We're very lucky. We're in this position uh, as the United States, as the world reserve currency for the dollar to be 99% of stable coins on chain. But that doesn't necessarily mean it will be like that forever. And in fact, if a lot of those go offshore, then it, you know, gives more, like you said, more ammo for other stable coins to come online. Yeah, that that is completely correct. And I think, look, from a human rights perspective, for all of my, you know, complaints earlier, the United States has probably done the best job globally of respecting property rights and people's financial independence of the major nations. Again, there might be small ones that have done better, but back to the comments about why it's easier to do it there. So if that's true, having a U.S. regulated, U.S. controlled dollar backed stablecoin be the dominant thing used on the blockchain is actually a human rights issue. Right. That is to say, we want to extend this sort of financial control of these financial rights to as many of the billions of people on this planet as possible, not in a mandatory way, but in an opt in way, like it's a thing people can buy should they choose to. And the fact that we're just completely fumbling that is, quite frankly, you know, just embarrassing. Um, and how can stablecoins empower individuals and businesses globally in this regard? Yeah, so let, let's talk about two elements of that. Before we get into the dollar component, let's mm -hmm. just talk about the stablecoin component, right? So you could think of blockchains as kind of an omni-ledger that allow peer-to-peer -peer transaction. So previously, if I'm a merchant in Thailand, right? And I have a supplier in Finland, right? Let's pick two places that are far apart using different currencies and I want to pay them. I'm going through this convoluted web of intermediaries to get that done. If we're both on a blockchain, I can just send them a stable coin, right? One hop, peer to peer, we're done. Same mm. thing is true, right? Of any individual paying a merchant, any merchant paying like taxes, anybody interacting with a bank, it all becomes very compressed you eliminate a lot of intermediaries and in the self-custodial model, you eliminate a lot of the risks of being expropriated by bad actors, right? Because in a lot of the world, right, like being in the banking system is your first mistake with regard to keeping control of your own money. So I think without getting into the currency part, stable coins are a tool to allow people to have a lot more control of their money and allow other people to interact with them in ways that may not have been previously possible. Two, off the back of that, when we think of dollar-backed stablecoins in particular, now everybody has the ability to opt out of their local system and into the dollar standard. What that is going to do over time is raise the bar on financial conduct in a lot of countries that have historically been pretty liberal about, you know, expropriating their own citizens through inflation or just straight up stealing their money. Mm -hmm. Because now if you can't at least get close enough to the dollar that people don't want to bail out, get into that, your currency is going to collapse and everybody's just going to use the dollar. So it serves as a check on the worst behavior, right? You're not going to have 50% inflation 10 years in a row in a place and people still using the currency. So I would tell you from that standpoint, extending the reach of the dollar, or quite frankly, any other like credible major currency, so maybe the euro, right, is also a good in that it really sort of limits the behavior of the worst actors in the space who have taken advantage of their people. Yeah, that's interesting. Like if dollar stable coins become widely available and people can opt out into the dollar, that puts a lot more pressure on those like host nations and their fiat currencies. Otherwise, like, They'll just collapse and the only, and it's, it's kind of like a bank run, but it's like a currency run. 
Yeah, it it is the nation state version of the bank run, right? Yeah. Like, why would I hold like the Mongolian Tumbrug if I could just own dollars unless they start behaving better? Yeah, you uh, know, and, and then the interesting part of that is people will get their hands on these things. Like when I was at Paxos, the only country where I'm genuinely confident nobody owned our stable coins was North Korea, right? Which tells you that if you want to stop this behavior, you basically got to turn off the internet. Yeah. Uh, I'd say the like. What are your thoughts on Balaji's statements about the dollar? Because he's a big dollar doomer, and I've seen him talk. I've now I've seen like he talked two different places about dollar doom and gloom and U.S. decline and this and that. Do you what do you what's your response to that? Well, so first of all, I think pretty highly of Balaji. I think he's had very good ideas on a number of topics. This is one where I diverge from him. Um, And I would say that specifically in the sense of I don't think he's directionally wrong, but I think he is wrong on magnitude. Right. And what that means is I think hyperinflation in the United States requires a sequence of events that is much more catastrophic than anything that's like a median prediction. So, yeah, there's, I don't know, a nuclear war. Right. If an earthquake is so big that California literally sinks into the ocean and there are no survivors and all the companies are gone. Maybe we could start heading in that direction. But I think as you look at the collapse of currencies and you look at previous like bouts of hyperinflation, they're not large nations with extremely powerful and functional economies that are the global reserve currency. Yeah, that's just not a thing. I think a better mental model is something like the 1970s, right? Like, are we going to have hyperinflation? No. But given the amount of money we have spent and appear to be desiring to continue to spend? Could we have 10 straight years of 8 to 10% inflation? Yeah, totally possible. So to me, the magnitude and the timing is the problem. I think he is directionally right. Like you can't spend sort of call it more money than your real output indefinitely. Mm -hmm. That's not a thing. It will catch up with you. But we have a lot of real output, right? So don't forget that part. Yeah. Um, I kind of want to bring it back on chain a little bit. I kind of want to bring it back to crypto and crypto collateralized uh, stable coins. And since this is a Frax podcast, uh, I'd love to get your thoughts on Frax and uh, you know their model of being a crypto collateralized stable coin on chain. So the first thing I would say about Frax is before we get to the crypto collateralized part, I actually think the best thing the guys at Frax have done is understanding the liquidity and on-chain environment better than anybody else, right? Mm -hmm. Because holding a peg is two parts. It's do I have a good theoretical mechanism to do this, but also did I actually do it? (laughs) So I want to give the team at Frax, like I know Sam and Drake personally, um, a lot of credit for craftsmanship on that front. So that is to say one of the big innovations of Frax is just doing a good job with liquidity pools doing a good job with real-time monitoring and making that transparent to users, doing a good job with understanding how governance should work and what appropriate models are so that weird stuff is not happening constantly, right? Like doing a good job of understanding the trade-offs that they're making. And so number one for Frax that I think people have undervalued is craftsmanship. I would say if you look across the crypto space at the crypto-backed guys, it's them and LUSD have probably done a disproportionately good job at the craftsmanship part of things. And they deserve a lot of credit for that. And people don't talk about that enough with Frax. So I wanted to start with that. Number two, I think being a crypto backed stablecoin 
assuming that you get your parameters correct can work, right? If you think about sort of like bank deposits, which to some extent Frax is a crypto analogy for, right? Like they take in money and then they go make a bunch of loans. And if the loans are good, as we talked about before, especially with like a narrow bank, you're going to be fine. And so the question is, is Frax selecting the right collateral and this effort of, hey, we're going to hold stable coins, they're fiat back that work properly. Maybe we're going to diversify in those. We're going to try to have sources of yield that produce returns that create a buffer. And if we take crypto collateral, we're only taking the bluest chip crypto collateral in sane ways and then making sure that we have like a significant excess margin. I think all of that is smart. Right. And again, the craftsmanship is there in a way that maybe it hasn't been for some of the other projects in that space. Like these guys mm-hmm. are not backing this thing with Doge, right, at any collateral ratio. And so mm-hmm. I look at that and I think their model to me kind of makes Frax look a lot like a commercial bank on chain, if you think about what they're doing. And mm-hmm. they've spent a lot of time on the craftsmanship around liquidity and management of that. So again, like I've said, I'm very bullish Frax in the crypto-backed space because I think, you know, beyond the theoretical vision, they've thought a lot about the operational vision. And that really is what lets you survive or not when things go wrong. Yeah. And uh, what are your thoughts on LUSD's model with that, you know, just ETH, pure ETH collateral and whatnot and how it compares to Frax? Yeah. So I think LUSD is a probably extremely crypto native implementation in the sense that it's harder for them to do all the liquidity things that Frax does. It's harder for them to be scalable than it is for Frax. So in many ways, my answer to LUSD is like, it's a cool experiment. It's probably the correct way to do a truly decentralized stablecoin because LUSD is more decentralized than Frax. Frax yeah. sits on top of fiat backed stablecoins. Yep. Those are centralized. Fine. But the flip side is the limitation of that is scalability is pretty poor, right? And so both of them are making trade-offs. One of them will definitionally be smaller and probably less liquid than the other, but less interdictable. So the question is, what do you care about and why? I think it's good that both exist, and I think they're highly complementary to each other. Yeah, yeah I, I, I agree. Think for the LUSD, I think for the LUSD uh, argument, it's like, it's made for the right people who want the right things that LUSD can deliver. Yes. Full stop. Yeah. Right? And it will grow at the speed of which demand for it will grow. And it's kind of designed for that. So I think that it definitely deserves its place. Um, but I, I do want to circle back to Frax. And I wanted to ask you, conversely, what are the things you don't like about the Frax, uh, whether it be at the design or the team? And what could they improve on? Okay. So... If I were thinking about improvements for Frax, I would say the following. One, I think they do a good job at disclosing data that's understandable to like complete crypto degens. I think they do a (laughs) poor job of disclosing that data in a way that's understandable to regular two-legged human beings. So one, I think they could do a lot better on data visualization and data delivery in the way that you want somebody who, oh, I don't know, is on the Federal Reserve Policy team to be able to look at the thing and understand what's going on and why. So that is point number one. Point number two, I think one of the competitive advantages that Frax could potentially have is getting deployed faster than all the fiat-backed stablecoins into various crypto ecosystems. I think there are many chains that still don't have a canonical stablecoin or are still early in that development. I get Frax on there as quickly as possible because you don't need regulatory licensing like some of the other people do. Mm -hmm. And I know they have the talent to implement those things. Three, 
However well you do with risk management, you can always do significantly better in the crypto space. I think they could still professionalize the operations even further and go from being pretty good to being like bulletproof. So I think that is an area of opportunity. With that said, again, I think they're further along than many, but I think there is still probably a quarter of the way up the mountain, right? So there's a lot more space you could go to. The last part I would say on that front is, as you think about potential future models of FRAX, it would be nice to have a way for the underlying collateral to pass through interest to you. That helps protocols, especially in a transparent way. So they should keep an eye on developments in the fiat-backed space or develop those relationships right now. And then Mm -hmm. the other part of that is as you think about balancing that and crypto collateral, you're going to need to think in a pretty complex way about that ecosystem and how to sort of maintain the expertise and liquidity that they have, because that problem only gets more complicated through time. Yeah, it only gets bigger at scale. Um, wait, could you show another and, question? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I just want to wrap up that point. Austin, I'm so glad you brought up those improvements because Frax is literally working on all of those things. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's, it's, I love it. I love it that we're in the right direction, obviously, for the data bit and the explaining to the normal two-legged humans. We have Flywheel for that. Yes. And for everything else you've mentioned, the Frax team has just been releasing uh, Frax Gov, for example, to change the way the professionalize it a bit more, right? And kind of handing it over to the community and finding the right people to kind of take on these things. So they're definitely moving in that direction. So I'm very happy to hear that, you know, they're doing what they what a professional like yourself, a professional veteran hard money manager are kind of expecting. So I'd I'd love to see it. Yeah, and in many ways, you know, I think Frax in particular has the opportunity to become the standard bearer for what I would call responsible DeFi, right? Like showing this isn't all like scammers and meme coins, but things can be built to a professional grade that real people can use that have utility in a responsible way. And so, you know, that is a space that is underpopulated and very, very needed much right needed. now with where crypto is. So, you know, it, again, it's not coincidental that I said I think highly of them, but, you know, I certainly hope the team succeeds beyond even their wildest dreams on all of those factors. Yeah, and we hope so too. And we'll be right here covering them every step of the way. Uh, yep, I think- I, yeah, I also ahead. want to raise one more point on those yeah. guys, which I think is very interesting is- I made a comment earlier about how a lot of crypto people are like pridefully ignorant of traditional finance and risk. Frax is not. Like, I know a lot of those guys, they think deeply about some of these issues. So I think it's not a coincidence they have themselves pointed in the right direction here. And more people in crypto should be embracing that ethos because trust me, it's much easier to learn from other people losing money than by doing it yourself. Yourself. Yeah, it's it's kind of ironic in DeFi how few people have that, you know, fixed that, that the specific part of TradFi where it's, you know, fixed income, you know, thinking about trading in this conservative manner. It's usually like the DGENs and equities and whatnot that come over <laughs> to crypto to DGEN even harder. But you don't usually see like the conservative people go over to crypto. It's like you don't see that match, but you're probably the exception. But hopefully what can we do to get, you know, those conservative fixed income people interested in stable coins and crypto more. So I think, you know, honestly, we need more things like this podcast. We need more written stuff in that vein. 
we need people from this space who are the responsible actors to do a better job of getting themselves to non-crypto native stuff. Like I see people at consensus, I see people at, you know, mainnet, but the reality is that's not where the TradFi people are. Some of y'all need to go talk at like the Fed FinTech conferences. And so part of that is building this network of connections and being willing to meet them on their terms and being able to speak their language mm-hmm. because, you know, it, the way I explain it to people is this, everybody in crypto is totally familiar with how it sounds when TradFi people try to talk about crypto. Like it's a disaster. They don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> they lie constantly without knowing they're lying because they have bad information. <laughs> they oversimplify and they say stuff that's just like even worse than being wrong. It's incoherent, right? Like mm-hmm. to even understand what they meant takes a 40 page essay to correct it. The problem is when crypto people talk about finance, same thing. <laughs> but it works in the other direction. Yeah. So we need to get better at understanding what that side is good at, where their expertise is and how to meet them on those terms. Because some, but not all of their criticisms of this space are actually quite legitimate. And if we learn from their mistakes and experience, that just bootstraps like our speed of building and adoption rather than having to like step on every landmine ourselves. So what are some of those uh, FinTech, TradFi conferences and events that, you know, we could possibly go to? So the Federal Reserve System has a series of fintech events. Their policy teams and economists often put them together. If you know anybody in that space, you should reach out to them. If those things are going on, you should be talking about them on Twitter. You should be talking about them on LinkedIn. Be aware of what's going on there. Two, there are a lot of traditional manager conferences, even around digital assets, right? Like I'm going up to an event in Stanford um, in a couple of weeks. And that's going to be mostly TradFi people, but I'm on a panel about stable coins, right? And so things like that are areas where I would like a few of the responsible crypto native people to go and speak to people and show them it's not all like crazy scammers. Some of these people are thinking pretty deeply about what's going on. Also stuff, you know, more in the, call it like regular banking payment space, right? Like showing people, hey, here's the benefits if you use this stuff, because they don't intuitively know, right? Like these people have full-time jobs that are hard, right? The average person on Wall Street's probably working 80 hours a week if they're in a serious risk-taking role. They don't have time to learn all this stuff. So you've got to be able to package it for them and show the benefits if you want them to get interested, right? So that's mm-hmm. what I mean by you got to go meet them like in their space. Got to go to their turf. Kit, we got some more events we need to throw. <laughs> Yeah, and, no, and, and I, you know the other thing is like the other thing is try to get them to come to the better of the crypto events. Like, please don't send them to Bitcoin Miami. That's going to be a disaster. But like, <laughs> if you know TradFi people who are like even a little bit crypto curious, try to get them to come to things like Consensus. Got to have another stable saloon or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, look definitely. if if we're going to do one in New York right and you're gonna do that again let me know i'll invite as many TradFi people as i know who want to come to the thing yeah Ooh. we can have round we can have you and drake on board for that one but i but i mean things like that i actually think would be very yeah. helpful is like do it in new york where people can get to where you can just mm-hmm. have a round table and do the thing of like hey we're not going to publish the attendee list so nobody's getting yelled at here and come ask any question you want there's no dumb questions and we'll round table the thing like yeah. those things really do go a long way yeah, I couldn't. It's like a staple speakeasy. Stable speakeasy. <laughs> <I like> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, but as we're, we're coming to a wrap here, uh, Austin, I wanted to ask you, like, where do you see the stable coin space going in two years? And where do you hope it goes to in two years? So where do I see it going in two years? I think within two years, we will have a stable coin that looks like the example I described way earlier in this podcast, like a properly constructed one offshore. Somebody is going to do that. They're going to run it better. It's going to start scaling. It's going to be a better user experience. That thing is coming. Where would I actually like it to be? I'd like that thing to be in the United States. And I'd like our financial regulators to bring it inside the four walls because it's much better for everybody here and the world if we have all of the protections of the American system. So I would prefer it happen here and it happened the right way and at scale. So Austin, well, first off, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. And usually at the end of these pods, we like to go through a series of lightning round questions, you know, just to get to know you a bit better as, as a person. So the, the first question uh, I always start out with is, what was your virgin crypto experience? And sexes <laughs> don't count. When did you first touch the blockchain? So the first time I really interacted at all with crypto um, was when I was at Stone Ridge. So I had been looking at it academically starting in about 2016, but in 2018, I was at NIDIG. And I got roped into an initiative to start to think about how to like actually loan cash from like the banking system against Bitcoin, uh, which will send you down a rabbit hole of trying to figure out all of the various different incredibly brain damaging forms of loans. So the answer as to what the first thing I actually did was the same as a lot of people in financial markets, which is to say repo. So we lent money against Bitcoin. Got it. When did you personally touch the blockchain? Oh, you actually did a transaction like you bought some Bitcoin or something like that? Got yeah, it. Okay. And, and more so professionally right which was a weird experience right because like right. Nidig is a crypto company that's true i don't think anybody's given that answer before but um the, the second one is what is your favorite off-chain touch grass activity hobbies and interests <laughs> off-chain touch grass activity all right so we'll, we'll get a deep cut here that's going to make a friend of mine who's a reporter at bloomberg happy so I am a long, long, long time strategy gamer. And as I've gotten older, I play less video games and significantly more like board and miniature games. So one of the things I've been doing since I was in my early teens, which is a lot longer than I want to publicly admit to, is I have been painting miniatures and playing Warhammer 40,000. Sick. Deep cut. Deep cut. Deep cut. Okay. Speaking of your younger self, what's some advice you would give to your younger self? from college you know it's hard because a lot of the things i've succeeded in have basically been with the game plan of let me see if i can get people to pay me to chase around interesting <laughs> opportunities which is you know honestly his life advice worked pretty well i can um, second that <laughs> yeah second that. but like the big pieces of advice i would probably give to my former self come in two varieties um one of them is have more patience with some of the things that I'm doing from a trading perspective. Like I've learned over time, like discipline and patience and managing your risk well is often more important than being right in the first place. And that keeps you out of a lot of problems. So it's back to kind of what I was saying about fracks is the craftsmanship part is more important than you think. 
Number two is that it doesn't matter how much you know if you can't communicate it. I've gotten much better at that over time by practicing. And I would tell people in general, the value of the knowledge you have in your head goes exponential when you can get it out of your head and into the hands of other people in a way they understand. I like that last one. I like that last one too. Um, and the last question is kind of wrap second up second to last here. one. No, second to oh, last the second one. Last, second to last one. You're right, you're right, you're right. The second to last one is if you weren't in crypto, you're not in finance or tech or teaching, what would your career path be? Okay, come on, dude. You've ruled out like three quarters of the economy right there. Like, so this is this is the problem with being something of like a wanderer across these spaces. Is I've done almost everything. Um, so probably being a writer. Um, you know, back to the point on communication. But again, like my career includes like insurance financial markets, consulting, right. academia, and crypt. That is literally like half the economy. A professional renaissance man over here. Career. I, re <laughs> I think you've just insulted renaissance men everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> A fixed income renaissance man. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that, that they'll tolerate. <laughs> yeah. Um, last question. Uh, who would you recommend for being a guest on Flywheel? Ooh. Uh, that is a very interesting question. Um, so I would tell you I have a couple of potential recommendations, and it depends Please. on the angle you want to go down. If you're thinking about long-term view of the crypto markets in general and sort of the visionary side of that, uh, my friend and co-professor Omid Malakan up at Columbia is actually very, very interesting on that front. Not nearly as well known as he should be because the dude has no stomach for marketing. So like he's brilliant. I just bought his but, book, actually. I literally just bought his book. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to introduce you. Like he's Ooh. a great dude. I think mm -hmm. he would be a very interesting conversation and guest on that front. So I would tell you that is one <clears throat> that you could think about. Um, number two, as I start like unwinding this stuff, I don't know if she would do it. Uh, but there's a woman who was very influential in my career at JP Morgan, who I think the world of named Alice Wong, and she's been involved in financial markets transformation, like back to the days of going from like paper tickets to electronic trading and FX markets, and really understands the arc of adoption into regulated financial institutions in the real world, and now looks at strategy at JP Morgan. I would tell you, I think both of those could be very interesting conversations of the sort that it's harder to find from yeah. two people who most of crypto is probably unaware of, despite being quite influential. We got to write that I down. Love <laughs> I love those. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on that note, Austin, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a very enlightening conversation about the world of stablecoins, fixed income, the future of stablecoins, and everything in between. Hope to have you on again. Uh, thank you. And thank, thank you. you. I, I really, really enjoyed it. I think this was a great conversation. So I really appreciate you having Likewise. See you around. Thank you all. Hello, post-game. Well, guys, that was fun. I like this one. This is for all the money nerds out there. The true <laughs> ones. <laughs> the money nerds. The flyest of the flywheel. <laughs> uh, so that was uh, really interesting. I actually learned a lot. It was uh, good to hear some, I guess, more practical than just let's ban everything and make everything security and shut everything down. It feels yeah. it feels good that we have people 
Austin on our side, helping us drive policy yeah. forward. We need people like Austin that are nuanced, that are truly in both camps of the one foot, you know, in TradFi, regulated land, can speak their language, as well as the other foot in crypto and in stablecoin, and actually has experience in running a stablecoin. Yeah, exactly. I, w- I really liked his um, kind of ideas on what a stablecoin is, right? Because he's we asked him about stablecoin maximalism in the beginning, and he didn't really like agree on that, but he just said that there will be stable coins, right? And they should be kind of this way. And he's done all the research about what that, that way should be. Yeah. I think it, it's not that he disagreed on it. I think we have a different definition of stable coin. Mm-hmm. Um, I consider stable coin, you know, and a digital asset that has a reference peg that is like, you know, that is tied to any reference peg. So I like think of like ETH peg stable coins, you know, gold peg stable coins, but in Austin's definition, he's only thinking about fiat-pegged uh, stablecoins. And I think both have their merits. I think Austin's is probably easier to understand. But I also think, you know, there, it's, it's like I said, it's, we're kind of immature in the linguistics and the descriptions of these things. And like, there needs to be better words to describe what I'm trying to say and what Austin's trying to say. I think we should keep stablecoins under the definition of stablecoin maximalism as I have it. Obviously, I'm biased. And we can come up with something for like Austin's definition. But I think we, you know, we agreed to disagree there and we actually agreed on a lot of things. Yeah, I mean, Sam's definition is more just like tokens will represent everything. And those tokens will have to be pegged to whatever they represent. Mm-hmm. While right. Austin's definition is more just we have fiat money and it's represented as the stable coin on chain. And that stable coin is pegged to fiat money only. Yeah, but Austin also said that, you know, he also envisioned a world where tokens are all kind of, I'm sorry, real world assets become tokens. They just kind of live on chain. And that's just where the next evolution of finance takes you, right? And in his mind, he calls those more of just like wrapped tokens or yeah. just, the asset themselves like they're not they're not a token they're just the asset like you're not trading gold tokens you're actually trading gold it just now is the back end that the blockchain instead of some you know a a settlement system yeah because a lot of those definitions are like legal right like you have a company that's an SPV, or and then you buy gold and then you're wrapping the gold versus being able to issue a stable coin from a bank Right. Or like something from a bank, right? So there's like different legal layers that I think he's more focused on. Yeah. yeah. It was interesting to hear his take about the the differences in policy, right? About how like the Republicans want to keep the stablecoin issuance at the at the state level, and, you know, decentralized among these banks versus a singular federal issuer um, that the Dems are pushing for. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't call it an issue. That would be more of a CBDC. But I think one is going for like, hey, like, you know, same way there are state chartered chartered banks, there could be state chartered stablecoins. While with like the Democrats, they would rather just have like the OCC just regulate everything. Um, and there, it's a very stark distinction. I would rather see the state chartered one because I think those could fit the needs of those local jurisdictions better in the same way that there are, you know, 12, you know, member federal reserve branches each for like a different region of the country that can you know issue fiat specific to those needs like i think stable coins would do a better job 
you know, at a local level than at in a decentralized manner than at a uh, just national catch-all be-all manner because America's huge. It's a massive country. So, you know, the thing that I really liked about Austin was hearing almost like a, a patriotism for the United States. And yes. That, like mm-hmm. what stable coins are going to allow for is anyone in the world to opt into the dollar system, no matter where they live or what kind of regime they're in. And um, this is the most powerful thing that we can offer is the ability to opt in. Just like people talk about opting into Bitcoin as well, too. Now we'll be able to opt into dollars. Yeah, it'll never it's never gotten been easier to opt into dollars than with stable points. Yeah, yeah. And that you already see that's the case, but we just need better legal structures around. And, you know, now that the genie's out of the bottle, I mean, it's there's really no going back for these other countries yeah. like Argentina or mm-hmm. uh, anywhere else where there's high inflation. Yeah, I think uh, my favorite part of this interview was when he was describing his ideal stablecoin and combined different elements. Mm-hmm. You know, it had like, you know, offshore, like right now it would be offshore like Tether, you know, the UI and API capabilities of Circle, and then, you know, the craftsmanship, to take his word, the craftsmanship and the ba- uh, and risk management of Paxos. If you combine all those things, and then garner a monetary premium for said stablecoin, then that will be the dominant stablecoin. And that, you know, obviously I have like, you know, Frax and Frax USD in my head of like, oh, like how could like Frax do this for themselves? Would also pay out interest. As well, and pay so. out interest, of course. And that's like the yield. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it was interesting to hear his experiences as a money manager tie into how he views stablecoins, right? Like he yeah. ran these, he ran these money. Um, uh, fixed fixed income funds where similar to what the people at Circle and Paxos are. Well, he worked at Paxos, right? So, I mean, he was managing their their cash balances and just uh, going through the process of figuring out how much money you need on the day, like ensuring the safety and security of the, the cash on hand. And then like the yield is kind of like the last thing that they're worried about, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If yield is the last thing. Yeah, the eighth thing. <laughs> the eighth of three things. Yeah. it's the eighth thing. No, I, I definitely like the nuanced. How, I didn't re- recognize. I mean, obviously, we know that stablecoins are difficult, but I, I didn't appreciate as much until he laid it out like so cleanly across the board. Like, what are the actual duties that he has to do every single day at Paxos when he was managing billions and billions of stablecoins? Yeah, the day in the life. Got to make sure the liquidity is there. Oh, you're muted. You're muted, Sam. Sam. Yeah, yeah I'm here. I, I also liked how he talked about um, about Frax as like a bank, like Frax mm-hmm. most resembles a bank. Where and and his praise for Frax about uh, essentially mastering the liquidity system inside of crypto and being yeah. you know the, the smartest guys in the room to figure that out about you know how can we create liquidity across everywhere on all these different chains uh, and and provide a service that's essentially better than anybody else can do. Yeah. And the fact that he said, like, you know, there isn't a clear winner yet in the stablecoin space. You know, it hasn't been created or it hasn't evolved to that or like that stablecoin with the ideal structure hasn't evolved to that point yet. Um, and I, tr- you know, we're all biased, but I truly think like Frax can be that. Like, you know, once like certain things happen, once certain things get like cleared up and come online, you know, I think like Frax can definitely be like the leader there. Can you talk about who you mentioned it at the end? You said the um, you just bought the book of this oh, book um, oh, um, Ahmed. Uh, I forget his last name. 
Yeah, he's somebody I just saw on Twitter. Um, and I was like, oh, this guy is like pretty smart. And I bought his book. I started reading it. I haven't like, to be honest, there's like a few things on my list. I want to like read this book about cryptography first, <laughs> the code book first. But um, yeah, he wrote like a book, like kind of like a giving like exactly what uh, Austin was talking about, like bird's eye, you know, long-term vision view of crypto. So mm. when I like finished reading this book, we should definitely have him on. And I think he would be a great guest. And I could tell that, you know, when he said like, yeah, this guy just doesn't like marketing. Like, you know, there's no better outlet of no marketing marketing than flywheel. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that's great. Do you guys have anything else you wanted to bring up before we head out? Bullish Austin. Bullish Austin. Yes. Yeah. We're going to have to go visit him in, in uh, Brooklyn. Yeah. Me and you, Dave. Get some Indian food. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, take us out, Dave. Yeah. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. If you want all the latest updates about Flywheel, Frax, and everything in between, you know what to do. Hit that bell button. Give us a like. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter at FlywheelDefi. Join the conversation in our Telegram at FlywheelDefi. You can follow me on Twitter at DefiDave22. You can follow me at ZeroXCapital underscore K. And I'm at Traders underscore Insight. And... We will see you next week. Peace. That's a wrap. Everything said on this episode is not financial or tax advice. This channel is strictly for educational purposes and is not in investment advice or solicitation to buy or sell any assets or to make any financial decisions. This video is not tax advice whatsoever. Please talk to your accountant and do your own research.